Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Kaladin, Shallon, and Dalinar from the Brandon Sanderson novel, The Way of Kings. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest, Tiana Homer. Welcome back, Tiana. Hey, thanks for having me back. So glad to have you back. It has been a little while. We had you on a few years ago to talk about one of the Harry Potter books, and I've always had in my mind, gotta get Tiana back. And when I decided it's time to do... One of the big Brandon Sanderson <laughs> um, Stormlight Archives books. I, I knew we had to have you on, Tiana. I've been waiting for you to do this book for years, so I'm so excited to come back for it. I'm pretty sure when we had you on for the Harry Potter one, you had mentioned, like, if you're going to do a Sanderson, I, I, I'd i be good for that. And I know you're a huge Brandon Sanderson fan, which, I mean, there are many Brandon Sanderson fans. He is a very popular author. Um, for good reason. In some ways, it made it a little intimidating for me to want to do a Brandon Sanderson novel. <laughs> uh, I mean, we have done I... Elantrans, uh once before uh, with, with uh, Kirsten was on as a guest uh, for that. And even that one, it was like, okay, this this is one of the big, big fantasy series, big fantasy author. And I know there's a devoted fandom that I am not at. I mean, I like Sanderson's books that I've read, but I have not like invested in the fandom the way I know many people have. But I know you're one of those people. So I'm so glad you're willing to come on for this. I mean, you use some key terminology there. You're not yet invested, which mm-hmm. is the problem. Investiture is the main magical system. So you need to become invested <laughs> in his books. Um, I, I, I've already started the second book in the series after I finished this first one. And I will just say it is a time investment to tackle <laughs> that is very uh, true. Th- these particular <laughs> books. Uh, so for anyone who's not familiar, The Way of Kings is a 2010 novel by Brandon Sanderson. And it is the first novel in an epic fantasy series called The Stormlight Archives. And it tells the story of Kaladin, a slave with a mystical destiny, Shallon, a student with a mystical destiny, and Dalinar, a member of the royal family with a mystical destiny. Uh, that's that's good, like real quick version of the plot, right? Right, Tiana? You, you know, we've asked, my husband and I have talked several times trying to figure out what is the best way to very briefly describe what this book is about. That's probably the best you could do, honestly. <laughs> but I also want to make it clear. They all have very different mystical destinies and different types of mysticism that we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This is a very hard book to summarize. So well done. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say the first bit of trivia that I had um, put down. This is a big book. It has a prelude, a prologue, 75 chapters, nine interludes, and an epilogue all in 1,258 pages. At least that's the copy that I, um, I have. And so when people say like epic fantasy, this is it. Like this is the epic of epic fantasy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's <laughs> sort of like a genre that's often, uh, you know, like Lord of the Rings style, like pre-industrial magic systems in, you know, in a world that has uh, a structure that has been decided by the author. You know, that that's what we also mean with epic fantasy. But this one really puts the epic into it as well in terms of length and uh, breadth of topics that you're going to find in the in this book as you go through it. Especially knowing going in that this is planned to be a 10 book series and that each book is over a thousand pages, it really makes you realize how epic this actually is going to be. And he stayed pretty well on schedule for that because he, um, I mean, Sanderson is a prolific author. He puts out a lot of material. Um, 
He also uh, very famously helped to wrap up the Wheel of Time series. And there are other fantasy series that have, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, remained incomplete. And I feel like um, he's someone who wants to make sure that a story gets completed <laughs> when, when it's all begun. Of, all of his readers are really hoping he wears his seatbelt and exercises regularly and eats <laughs> healthy because if he becomes Robert Jordan, nobody is going to be able to finish his books. Right. Um, and, and so it's more or less, uh, let's see, this this one came out in 2010, and then the sequels have come out in 2014, 2017, and 2020. So th- three or four years, which for a book of that length, like that's actually a phenomenal pace <laughs> to be maintaining. Well, in between two of those, he also wrote a book for Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. Right. And he's also putting out <laughs> other book series on his, the side. Yes. <laughs> Like on average, how many books do they put out in a year? Is it two books a year or is it just one and it feels like more? It's probably two to four. I mean, some of them are small. He writes Mm -hmm. a lot of novellas and short stories and then others are much bigger. But he's always throwing in little side projects and being published in compilations of short stories and things like that. Right. Um, as a fan of Sanderson, do you remember when you first like started reading him or became aware of him as an author? That is a really good question. It was a long time ago. I believe I read Elantris first and then my husband BJ started reading Mistborn and he was like, okay, you got to read this one too. And I was like, okay. He knew that him because he had read the Wheel of Time series. I had not. After I read Mistborn, I was like, well, I guess I better do Wheel of Time now (laughs) and read through all of that. And by then I was just hooked and I now read every book as soon as it comes out. Uh, Do you, so um, let's see, was, was Elantris his first? Elantris was his first published book. His first published book. Okay. Uh, And I remember I was taking a class in, I want to say I was in grad school, but I was jumping back and, uh, you know, taking a, a lower level course, which you can do as grad students. You just get a little extra work, <laughs> um, but it was on sci-fi and fantasy. <laughs> and he was just in the room hanging out with the teacher and talking about sci-fi and fantasy books. Uh, I, I don't think he was an official TA, uh, but it was around the time that Elantris was getting published. And, uh, and so I, I had met him in that setting. I'm not at all saying we're friends or anything, um, <laughs> you know, but, but I have met him and it was in that academic setting <laughs> talking about sci-fi and fantasy. Um, and, uh, I, I remember other students saying, I think he has a book coming out and it was Elantris, uh, was, was when that one was go- was going to be coming out. Um, and so that's when I first became aware of him. And then certainly when he, he was wrapping up the wheel of time, uh, which is a series again, I was familiar with, but I had not read, but it was such big news. Like I couldn't not know (laughs) that he had been chosen to, to wrap up the wheel of time. And um, he was a known author, but I think that kind of elevated his status for the fantasy reading community because the wheel of time was such um, a beloved and well-known series. Yeah. He became no first known with Mistborn. Um, That was a bestseller. And then wrapping up, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time really just shot his notoriety through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so a little bit more trivia about this particular book. Um, Brandon, Brandon Sanderson worked on this in the 1990s and had completed a draft in 2003, but he held off on publishing it while he was working on the Mistborn trilogy. The first draft um, 
had the main character make a completely different choice, which ended up feeling inauthentic. And he rewrote the whole thing. You added that last bit into the trivia section. I discovered that as I was reading it right now. I had no idea. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so you, you, you have a lot more trivia about Sanderson uh, than I have. So feel free to jump in at any point. Um, when it was released- You're doing this a great book... job reading my words. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this book reached number seven on the bestsellers list. And I believe the subsequent uh, ha- have reached number one. I know the, the most recent one definitely was number one. Yeah. Um, when it came out. Um, film rights to all of Brandon San- Sanderson's Cosmere universe were purchased in 2016, but everything remains in the planning and writing stages. So he has a shared universe, correct, of mystical systems and uh, and um, and it's called the Cosmere. Um, but yeah, some so of his works Cosmere. are not part of the Cosmere, correct? Yeah. Correct. Most of his books are Cosmere, but there are some notable ones that are not. He just wants to play with different kinds of magical systems. But all the ones that are in the Cosmere have kind of a history, shared things in the magical systems, which you don't really see until you've read several of them. And then you can start seeing similarities. And there are world hoppers that appear they jump between worlds and you see them. There's one character that appears in every single book. Is it Hoyd? I'm just asking. I, I mean, it I don't is feel like Hoyd. that's a huge book. Okay. Yeah. I can tell <laughs> from, he, he's a very minor character. I don't think I even included him in the summary, but I could just feel like this is one of those characters that the author loves <laughs> and the author will be using a lot. I just had a feeling. Okay. He's not named in every book, but if you're looking for him, you can find him in every book. Interesting. Um, so which books or which series of his are part of the Cosmere? Oh, let's see if I can get them all off the top of my head. We've got Elantris, um, which also has a short story called The Emperor's Soul. You've got the Mistborn trilogy, which also has a couple short stories. And there's going there's an Era 1. Era 2 is currently being written, and there will be an Era 3. There's Warbreaker and um, Stormlight Archives. Is Warbreaker a standalone book? It currently is a standalone book, but there is a sequel planned. And then there's a couple of other. Right. (laughs) That's true. There are a couple of short stories on other worlds that we haven't seen novels for yet. Um, Because the first Sanderson series that I actually read was The Reckoners, which is a non Cosmere series done with a different publisher than a lot of his Cosmere stuff. Correct. That's more of a YA superhero themed. Yeah, (laughs) it's 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 definitely playing with the superhero uh, genre. Um, And I actually, um, yeah, I reached out to Sanderson to talk a little bit about superhero stuff for a project I was working on after he had published that, and we exchanged a few emails um, talking about it. So he's familiar with the superhero genre, and he does some really intriguing spins on the genre in the Reckoner series. Maybe something we have to talk about in the in the podcast in the future. He does do some really fun things there. So as we've just noted, I guess uh, all of this. So there's the Stormlight Archives, which are all set on uh, the world. What is the world called? Uh, Roshar. Okay. And that, but, but then these other books in the Cosmere are on other worlds, but they're all part of one shared universe, correct? Yes. They're in the same universe, but they're all in different galaxies. Okay. I did not know that. Yes. Once you throw in the word galaxy, it starts to feel like a a, a little bit like Star Wars blending the sci-fi <laughs> and the 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 fantasy. <laughs> they never use the word galaxy in world, but um, there's a book called Arcanum Unbounded, which is a collection of sh- short stories. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, he organizes them by 
systems. Like this is the Rosharan system. This is the cell system. And it'll have a picture of the galaxy and like the suns and the planets and the moons and how they work together and what's ha- you know, where's the habitable zone and all this kind of stuff that just really makes you realize how much thought he has put into each one of these things. It's insane. And that's, that's what I love about these kinds of um, fantasy authors where you can just feel, um, you know, the hours of thought that are behind the scenes, like the iceberg, like we're seeing the tip of the iceberg in the story that's on the page. Um, but the world in this is so fully fleshed out. You know that he has thought um, in depth on the economic systems and, uh, you know, on the class systems and and the racial dynamics, uh, you know, that are present. And yes, we get those things acknowledged in uh, in the story, but in, in a way that lets you know, like, there's more to this world than what we're getting. Right. Yeah, I remember when I finished this book the first time, I put it down and said, I just read a thousand pages and had three very satisfying stories. And I have no idea what's happening in the bigger world. Like, I just realized this is only the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> There's so much going on. <laughs> Yes, uh, particularly in this one, like with the interludes, you you get shown in smaller chapters, uh, you know, the maybe like 10, 15 page chapters, right? Um, like, here's what's happening in one village way over here. <laughs> and it's so like, I that think... is so separate from what, you know, the, the, yes. the main storylines that we're getting. I think he did that because in Wheel of Time, um, which is one of the things he cut his teeth on, right? Um, one of the biggest complaints there is there were so many one-off characters. Um, I believe there's over 200 first, um, few, what, <laughs> um, first person first characters. Yeah. First yes. Person, yeah. Um, and it's just so overwhelming to read all of that and to try to keep track of all of these people. So he's like, how do I approach this? Cause it's a huge world. There's a lot of different countries. There's a lot of different religions and people like this is a, you know, the world is ending type of book. And so everyone in the world cares. How do you get that feel without being so overwhelming? How do you build the world when your characters are all in one location? Um, And so he uses the interludes as a way to do world building in a way that is not overwhelming to the reader. And I think the inner I have I need to go back and reread it. So I it, it took me a while to read this whole book <laughs> um, because uh, you know it, it's intense in terms of the amount, and I don't always have all the free time I would like to be able to commit to just sitting and reading for a really long spell, which is one of my favorite things. And I just wish I I could shape my life <laughs> to allow for more of those <laughs> stretches of time than I currently do. It's it's a, it's on my to-do list. So, you know, one of, one of my goals. Um, but so it took me a while because is... I was often reading in like 10-minute chunks, 15-minute chunks when I could grab it. Not even, you know, finishing a chapter always, which is always the worst when you've got to cut off a chapter uh, midway right. through. Um, but I would uh, sometimes like I, I'd read the interludes and it would feel somewhat disconnected. And then I remember there's one where like they mentioned a character and it, it had no ma- meaning then. And then later on I saw the character's name and I was like, I think I've read that somewhere, but I know this is the first time I'm being interested in the main story. I'm like, I think it's one of the inners. And you know, so I'm scrambling back finding the interludes. I'm like, okay, they were talking about this character in this one interlude. Um, and it just didn't, didn't feel like it mattered, but now clearly it does. And it's just demonstrating like this character's influence. Right. Um, 
you know, how, how far they spread. And I like those kind of like breadcrumb moments when I'm reading where it's like, okay, I feel like something was laid down earlier and I can't quite remember what it was. Um, but it is there. Um, and, yeah, there's sometimes I really have no idea why an interlude is in there, and I don't know for several books. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, well, oh. and you might not even remember it until you go and reread it, and then it's like, oh, this is why this is there, right? I was mm-hmm. about to say, I feel like a lot of these breadcrumbs are not for this one book. This is for the ten volume series that he he's, is writing, he's writing for the whole. Yes, <laughs> That's exactly. For sure. I can't imagine what his notebooks look like. Or a whiteboard in his office, you know? <laughs> I believe he has filing cabinets with folders. That's Lots intense. of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to be going into the summary, which I'm going to do a little differently than any previous summary. But before we do that, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now, I noted how many chapters there are in this in this book, and the book jumps between points of view and also jumps in time for some of the characters. And trying to do a summary, like even like one sentence per chapter, would just I, I felt start to feel too chaotic and unwieldy and incomprehensible for anyone who hasn't read this the, the novel. So there's three main characters. I have disentangled all the jumping back and forth and also straightened out the timeline for this summary, which just know this is a very different style of consuming the story than you get reading the book. And um, a lot of the like authorial flourishes of Sanderson are gone when I do it this way. But I just think it's the easiest way for us to be able to consume a 1200 page book on a podcast, uh, you know, for listeners who just want the quick summary so that they have context as we're moving on into the deeper discussion. Um, but then also the first thing I want to do is because this is a high fantasy world, I want us to kind of break down some of what this version of a fantasy world looks like, um, because so many of these things get introduced slowly and in snippets as we're meeting the characters throughout the story. Let's just lay it all out here at the beginning. Uh, and, uh, Tiana, you looked at my list and you said, you just wrote down a whole lot of words that start with the letter S (laughs) because my notes say... (laughs) Bren, shard plates, shard blades, shattered planes, stones, high storms, stormlight. <laughs> so if, if I just take out <laughs> high storms and just make that storms, then they would all be beginning with the letter S. Um, these are like a lot of what made this magical world function are these sorts of things. And Tiana, you know this world much deeper than I have. You've read all four books, correct? Uh, in Many times. Okay, several times. Even the one that just came out last year? No, that one I've only read once. Okay. But I was be only because I reread this for you <laughs> and for I decided podcast. not to reread the fourth one so that I didn't end up giving spoilers to everybody. Okay. So I'm going to try and give like my version and feel free to jump in and correct me based on having read only the first book in the series. Spren in this world uh, appear throughout. They are kind of like pixies, like just imagine kind of like Tinkerbell things, but they are called things like fear spren. So when someone's scared, there's a certain color of like pixie that starts to appear around them. And I can't remember how many, it must have been more than a dozen different kinds of spren were mentioned in this book, right? Correct. Um, And the spren typically are 
uh, simply like representatives or, or drawn to appear because of the emotion or some other event that's happening, but they don't really seem to have consciousness or, uh, or, or um, you know, autonomy or, or agentiveness, right? They're, they're just kind of there and then they disappear. Yeah. In general, there's a question in the book, are they attracted to these things? Like you have flame spread whenever there's flame. Or are wind spread, flames, right? Yeah. So do, are they attracted to flame or do they create flame? Are fear spread attracted to fear or is that why you feel fear is because they're fear spread? And there's that question in there. But for so, the most part, they're they're just there. They're just part of the world. And it's gotta be most people like, learn to ignore them. It'd be very annoying if there's like, I can't remember if there's one. I, I you know, love spread. Like you see the girl you like and love spread appear around you. That'd be very, you know, unfortunate. You see passion spread <laughs> okay. in this book. When Dalinar and Navani first kiss, there are passion spreads. Right. Okay. Uh, but that's, a, you know, that's a little different than like the girl I had a crush on across the farm field. <laughs> over yes, there. I haven't seen any like lust spren or crush spren which is probably for the best yes i I can't imagine going through adolescence on this world if that was a thing (laughs) (laughs) all right and then uh some other major magical elements are the shard plates and shard blades shard plates is kind of like magical armor that um make the 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 men it's always men who are wearing it in this uh at least in this book that we see uh because the men do the fighting and the women do the uh like academic work in this world right the the women are the ones who can read and write and study uh and the men as far as we basically see they're out there to fight <laughs> that's that's the large role it's that they basically have basically divided into women do the thing that create and men do the things that destroy mm-hmm um and shard plates are used to destroy in this version i can imagine like we even get a hint in one chapter of the idea of using shard plates to build uh but that's not how they're typically used it it, like magnifies the strength and agility and uh it turns anyone who's wearing it into a superhero right uh into like captain america type superhero not like (laughs) uh, you know uh laser beam shooting out your eye superhero but like every all your physical abilities are magnified while you wear this armor and it fits perfectly no matter who is wearing it. It adjusts to your size and shape. Mm-hmm. And then shard blades are these massive like anime sword that if they pass through someone, it doesn't cut the flesh, but they die instantly and their soul leaves them, right? That's kind of what we get there. Their, their eyes turn to smoke or smoke comes out of their eyes, something like that, and they're dead. Um, but if right. it wasn't a mortal wound, like, is, don't they say like, if it, if it like the shard blade just went through your, your arm, like your arm is then dead for the rest of your life, but you wouldn't yeah, die. So your arm's be... still there physically. Yes. It just is dead. It's, and it that turns... wouldn't kill you. It would have to be like a killing blow with a regular sword will kill you instantly as the blade just passes through you. Yes. And it doesn't cause any marks at all. It just kills the soul. And uh, the shard plates and shard blades are some of the most valuable items that can have. So like all the the kings and and the greatest warriors want these. The only way to get them because there's a limited supply is to kill a shard bearer. Is that the term in the world? It is. They're ancient weapons and we don't know how to create them anymore. The ancient radiance had them and the method of creating them has been lost over time okay um another thing i did you just add soul caster on this or did i have that one before i can't remember i added it okay so it's another one that starts with s so it fits the system uh soul caster <laughs> is a magical device that the wearer can essentially like transmute matter like transform it and transmogrify it all these 
you know, all those Change words. it from one thing to another. So the first big example we get is someone transforming a gigantic boulder into smoke and, and not like burning the boulder up. And no, she touches the boulder and the boulder is now smoke and disappears. Um, and so it, it like literally changes these things. Yes. Um, the Shattered Plains, this is where the battles are happening in this world primarily. Um, there are other skirmishes that we see briefly. But the main battle that is happening is is on this place called the Shattered Plains, which are these massive plateaus, like plateaus that seem large enough that it, literally entire armies are can, can go onto a plateau. So not like, oh, there's a little plateau and then a chasm. But these massive plateaus, but there's chasms separating all these plateaus on the Shattered Plains. And within the chasms, there are chasm fiends. These giant, uh, think like japanese monster <laughs> you know, the, they're, they're the like giant. giant crabs but they're bigger than godzilla yes and they're called chasm fiends um and as part of the economy of this world i would say if you kill a chasm fiend there is a uh what is it called again the heart a stone gem heart gem heart gem heart uh gem heart inside of it that is like one of the most valuable things you can have on this world they must be destroying their economic system by harvesting so many as they're fighting on the shattered planes <laughs> um because part of the war um has become this game where on one side there's the alethi right is that the name of the alethi yeah the alethi army uh and on the other side are the parshendi they are at war with each other, but they also just want to kill chasm fiends and harvest the gem hearts. <laughs> so that so the gem uh, hearts are important because they hold stormlight, mm-hmm. and um, they use that um, stormlight, those gemstones, in their soul casters. And this is important for the army because that's how they make food. They turn rocks into grain, mm-hmm. and after a while, the gems will crack and break, and then they have to have new ones. And so this replaces like all of the wagons and wagons and wagons you would need to bring food and clothing and everything lumber out into the shattered plains they can do with one person wearing a soul caster. Right. I remember I'm listening to, Oh, I've forgotten the name of the podcast, but Brandon Sanderson does it regularly uh, or at least was, I haven't checked the feed lately, but for a little while I was listening to one with him and several other authors where they would talk about uh, writing fiction. And I just remember one episode where Brandon Sanderson says, you always have to think about in your magical world, what happens to the economies when you introduce magic. So if you make something that can, uh, you know, float a ton of goods, what does that do to the need for donkeys and wagons, you know, in your world? And you've got to think through this. And this is one instance where I can see him doing that work, <laughs> you know, in, in his writing uh, mm-hmm. is um, thinking through this. Um, I know this book, you know, predates it. But when I saw the chasm feeds and the harvesting of the gem hearts, it made me think of the Mandalorian episode from uh, this recent season in which um, the native Tatooiners kill a, uh, a, a um, great dragon and, uh, as they're they're cutting it up, one of them finds like it looks like a gigantic pearl, and they all celebrate that they found a pearl inside of this giant. It, it, it's this giant, gigantic worm-like creature. Um, and when the, after it's dead, they they go and harvest out of its body this one pearl, and they all celebrate. We don't know what in their culture that means at all. But as I was reading the Way of Kings after seeing that episode, it made me think of that. And again, that's out of order. This this predates that one <laughs> by a while. <laughs> Um, so that's the Shattered Plains. Oh, and I was just going to say, like, for the war. So there's Parshendi and the Alethi are, are fighting this war. But it's become almost like a game where really they're not, like, going out on these plateaus to kill each other. They're going out on the plateaus to get to the Chasm Fiends. And when they meet at the same Chasm Fiend that they want to kill, that's when they fight each other. 
It does, it does not yes. feel like the tactics have become how do we defeat this other army? It's just how do we race them to the chasm fiends? Uh, okay, so then uh, as we mentioned, uh, the the gem hearts, but then also what do they call the other stones that can hold like stormlight and things? Is it um, uh, spheres? Spheres, right? So, so uh, the- spheres are just it's like a marble that they put a gemstone inside of. Mm-hmm. So they're all the same gemstones. They just turned their monetary system into, hey, let's put gemstones inside of marbles and spend those as coins. And uh, there's different kinds of uh, stones within the spheres that have different monetary values. And then just to explain the last couple of things that I think are necessary. uh, In this world, there are high storms, which are just massive storms that will destroy anything in their path. Uh, But they they come through very frequently, Uh, like and and it also says like uh the seasons like pass in a matter of weeks so like you'll move from mm-hmm. winter to spring to summer uh you know it within a couple months not through what you know they an entire year um at well, all and they don't and, even know what order the seasons are going to come in they'll say things like oh it's getting chilly i hope winter doesn't come next <laughs> yes and this boggles um, my mind how does how does this planet like rotate around its sun <laughs> And when I talk about the high storms, I just need to make very clear, like this, it feels like um, a, enough water for a tsunami like passes over, it, it, you know, in one night, right? It's just so right. much water. And let's it's just have that, driving and you know. with high winds that are tearing everything apart. Like they talk about throwing boulders. And so <laughs> yes. anywhere that they are wanting to have like a city, it has to have protection from the high storm. So they, they've got like their, wi- the, what do they call it? The windward side has to have like cliffs, you know, or, or uh, you know, some form of it. And like all their houses have to be built to a level that can withstand um, a high storm and where, because, uh, and even like they're, um, you know, they're traveling. They can't travel anywhere that's so far that they would be exposed to a high storm, you know, while they're out there, unless they're taking with them some means of protecting themselves. Yes. Luckily, the high storms always come from the same direction. And so as long as, you know, you can have windows as long as they're on the west side, because the storms (laughs) always come from the east. And well, and even the, I, I, it's not in our summary at all, but they, they talk about like uh, sailing is very difficult. Like you've got to plan your sailing from one port to the next very carefully and uh, be able to ensure that you're not caught out on the sea with a high storm. Yeah. And they're not entirely predictable. Like they are mostly predictable mathematically, but they get it right like eight or nine times out of 10. And so people are going to be caught off guard frequently. Mm-hmm. there's now, something terrifying about being a sailor <laughs> yes and that all felt like uh set up for a future novel to me <laughs> like that whole discussion <laughs> of being out at sea on a high storm it better happen at some point that is a Chekhov's gun just waiting to happen <laughs> brandon does not put anything in lightly if there's something that you're like hmm that seems important maybe it will be <laughs> Well, and I, I think that's a really good example of how you can be doing world building, but also setting up something for the future, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so that discussion, it makes you appreciate both um, what high storms are, how violent they are, and also, um, you know, some of the world building as far as um, the the ship travel and uh, commerce and how that's going to work here. But it does also feel like, you know, a, a, a hint of a plot line to come. And it didn't come in this novel, so I'm expecting it <laughs> as I move forward <laughs> so that's uh the world is there anything else you feel like we need to uh, explain as far as like establishing the world i think that pretty much covers okay so now i'm gonna run through 
uh, these three characters. I'm going to start with uh, Shaylin. Is that how it's pronounced, by the way? I don't know. Um, so Brandon is very clear that how he pronounces names and how the um, characters would pronounce their names are often different. And so he is not very picky about it. So I won't be picky about it. I personally say Shalon. Oh, okay. And that is how the audiobook narrator, Kate Redding, says it is Shalon. Okay. Well, I will go with Shalon then. So it's S-H-A-L-L-A-N for any listeners who are just curious about that. So Shalon comes from an aspiring upper-class family. Her father, despised by many, recently died. Her father had been secretly using a soul caster, which is, again, that mystical device that can alter materials into other materials, to create deposits of valuable minerals on his land to fund his political aspirations. When her father died, the soul caster broke too, leaving her family indebted and hated. Uh, So, um... Yes, he was making these valuable minerals, but he was also, um, you know, cashing some checks that he hadn't yet produced with the soul caster, it seems. Yes. <laughs> um, so Shalon is seeking to become a student of Jasna Colin, the younger sister of the king. Jasna is regarded as one of the smartest people in the kingdom, but also is a religious heretic. Shalon's plan is to become her ward and secretly p- replace her family's broken soul caster with Jasna's functioning soul caster, and then return to her family and stabilize their finances. Uh, she's a masterful artist, and she has a photographic memory and she can draw astonishingly detailed pictures from memories. She, um, she kind of, it, was, it makes me think of my kid's uh, book series called Cam Jansen about uh, a, a, an elementary school detective who like thinks click in her mind and takes a photographic and memory a photo. of, yes, I love of, of a moment. Uh, and, and so uh, it seems like Shalon and Cam Jansen could be friends in a strange <laughs> shared universe. <laughs> So Shalon is at first rejected by Jasna. She does not take on wards very easily, but her persistence, persistence eventually pays off. However, she loses some focus on her family's scheme when she comes to respect Jasna and to leg- legitimately enjoy what she is learning. And side note, she is basically learning in the Beauty and the Beast library on steroids. It's a library the size of a city. I get uh, Shalon's like, loss of focus on her family's finances a world away. <laughs> just so many books all right there like the world's they don't call it like the world's greatest library in the book i think yes or or repository of knowledge something along those lines it is the greatest repository of knowledge on all of roshar okay um she is also distracted by an ardent who is um kind of like a religious monk uh who is very concerned that shallan not be corrupted by jasna's lack of faith um it seems like the ardents are not supposed to get married but he is nonetheless romantically interested in shallan is that accurate they're not supposed to get married i'm remembering that detail right um you see them get married within the ardentia but the if they marry outside of it then they are removed from the Ardentia and become like the lowest class of citizen in their hierarchy. And we're not going to get huge into it, but there is a massive class system in this world. <laughs> yes. Very big. Uh, some of it d- d- decided by light eyes versus dark eyes. Uh, and, and you know, that that's, uh, you know, what the genetic markers of class um, is, is part of it. And it's a, a good example of, I think how, um, you know, fantasy novels can, can address real world issues, but in enough remove <laughs> that it feels <laughs> a little, um, you know, removed from our world, but you know exactly what they're dealing with uh, as they talk about it and as it gets criticized. Um, yes, <laughs> it, you can definitely understand exactly <laughs> where he's getting with that. 
Yes. Um, adding another distraction for Shallan, uh, whenever she starts sketching absentmindedly, which she does often, uh, she begins to add in figures with strange symbols instead of heads in the background of her drawings. She finds this disturbing because she does not mean to draw them. They just show up when she is letting her hand do the drawing. She finds this disturbing and scary. Uh, Jasna tries to uh, teach Shallan a lesson about applying ethics and philosophy in real life situations by taking Shallan out at night to a street where women have recently been attacked when four men try to assault her jasna kills them with her soul caster horrified at what jasna has done shallan now feels justified in stealing the soul caster which he does while worrying that jasna will discover the theft she draws the symbol headed figures again and panics worried she's going mad she runs to her room where the symbol headed figures uh start appearing to her and start asking her questions after answering them she soul casts a goblet uh on her bedside table into blood which begins to run everywhere hearing help coming she panics and cuts her arm hoping it will look like she just fell and cut herself uh then she passes out and she wakes up in a hospital where it now is obvious that people presume she attempted suicide her plan did not go off <laughs> as looking like she just fell <laughs> it was a lot of blood that came out of that goblet a lot but, of blood <laughs> yes uh jasna and the ardent visit her at their first chance the ardent subtly attempts to poison jasna but accidentally poisons himself and shallan instead jasna says she needs to soul cast the poison out of shallan shallan reveals the stolen soul caster so that jasna jasna can save her Jasna succeeds, but she is very angry about the theft of the soulcaster. Shallan realizes that Jasna had soulcast previously with the broken soulcaster and confronts Jasna, accusing her of being able to soulcast uh, herself without the tool of the soulcaster. Uh, and then uh, Jasna asks the symbol heads for help. Shallan, at, Shallan asks the symbol heads for help. Shallan. And attempts to soulcast. Yes, Shallan. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, and uh, Jasna admits the Soulcaster is a fake. On top of that, Jasna's research has revealed uh, that the the Voidbringers from Legend. So in their Legend, they have um, Radiance and Voidbringers. And Radiance were the good guys, but they kind of left, uh, and Voidbringers were the bad guys. Uh, and Jasna believes her from her research that Parshman, uh, that the humans have been using as slaves for as long as anyone can remember, may actually be the Voidbringers. So, uh, just real quick, I maybe should have had this at the top. Parshmen are very, um, they, they you know, they're, they're humanoid figures, but they're treated as less than humans, and they just kind of do whatever they're told. Now, the the war that the Alethi are at is with the uh, Parshendi, who look like Parshmen or look very similar to Parshmen, but they seem to have a full culture and communication and uh, intelligence that no humans seem to believe the Parshmen possess so one of the mysteries in this novel that does not get resolved is the relationship between the parshendi and the parshman but uh so now jasna is saying hey these uh parchment that are literally everywhere and are in every household and get used for every task that we have uh they might be the void bringers from myth that destroyed society so we're gonna have to deal with that because just imagine what it would be like if these parchment suddenly turned against the humans um also uh jasna reveals that the figures with symbols for heads are a kind of spread that grant soul casting powers that most people cannot see but now she realizes shallan is uh, one of the the those who are gifted uh, to be able to see them. So that is Shalon's story. 
Next story, Dalinar. Uh, Dalinar, uh, his brother, the king, was assassinated while Dalinar was drunk. Now Dalinar's nephew is the king, and he has the high princes, uh, of whom Dalinar is one, uh, and their armies fighting the Parshendi. um, The Parshendi accepted responsibility for the king's assassination, though there's hints that there's something weird going on with that. Uh, The war on the Shattered Plains is where the Alethi are now trying to revenge the assassination of their king. Uh, However, it as we've noted, it has kind of taken on the form of a game more than warfare where each of the high princes has their own individual army it's not one alethi army uh and they will race out to try and be the first one to claim a chasm fiend whenever uh a chasm fiend is spotted and uh to the point where like uh there's there's like loud um trumpeting symbols to say what uh plateau the chasm feed is appearing on and they know which army has the best chance to reach their first and a lot of them don't even go try um, <laughs> because uh, it's just a race to the chasm feeds now so dalinar has changed significantly since his brother's death he's become obsessed with an ancient text called the way of kings and he tries to maintain his camp and army by the old codes found in that text he was once known as a great fighter and duelist but is becoming much less interested in those things it's causing the other high princes to suspect that he's going a little bit crazy when high storms come he also appears to go into mad trances but in his mind he is seeing very clear visions of the past that he feels are teaching him and guiding him on the proper course to save the the world basically um he is mostly feuding with another high prince now now most of the other high princes are a little annoyed with dalinar and look down on him but he's his primary feud is with uh someone named sadeus dalinar's Sadius. Okay. Yeah. Sadius. <laughs> Only read the book. It's, uh, you know, yeah, one of those. Uh, I will have to listen to the audiobook to get it all standardized. Dalinar is interested in uniting the high princes into one army, but no other high prince will even join him in a combined attack uh, against the Parshendi. Eventually, oh, now I'm now I'm having major doubts. Sadius? <laughs> Sadius? Eventually, He's sad. Sadius. Okay. Sadius um, it has a chance to accuse Dalinar of treason in front of the king in a way that but he does not, and that makes Dalinar start to try agree to make some combined assaults uh, and see how that goes. And it does go well, initially. Um, oh, and just a sign out, Dalinar has always been in love with his brother's wife. They were courting her simultaneously before she chose to marry uh, the, the one that became the king. Um, she shows up back at the scene and woos Dalinar. Uh, Dalinar's wife is dead, but he can't even remember her name because of a magical thing I'm not even going to get into that's only hinted at in the book, never really fully explained. Uh, so that's where Dalinar is um, uh, in this kind of political spectru- structure, war structure. All right, the fourth uh, uh, thing that we want to cover is Kaladin. Kaladin uh, was the son of a surgeon in a small, middle-of-nowhere village. His father never charged for his services, but accepted gifts from the townspeople. Kaladin is trained by his father to help with surgeries, and his family has saved up to send him to a medical school in a larger kingdom. Kaladin has a younger, sensitive brother named Tien. Yes. Okay, you didn't correct me, so I'm going to take it. Tien. <laughs> When the town's city lord dies, a new bitter city lord uh, lord takes over the position. He does not respect Kaladin's father and turns the townspeople against Kaladin's family. When the city lord and his son are injured in a hunting expedition, Kaladin's father is called to help. He knows the son cannot be saved. He takes one look and says the son is dead already, even though he's still breathing at this moment. And he instead begins treating the city lord, despite the city lord's protest that he must save his son. Sometime later, a military leader comes to recruit, really kind of like force draft construction 
conscript for the king's army. Uh, when there are not enough volunteers, the city lord chooses Kaladin's younger and more sensitive brother, Tien. Kaladin immediately volunteers and promises his parents he will keep Tien safe. Spoilers, he does not. On the battlefield, Kaladin is a remarkably intuitive soldier, taking to his training very quickly. He understands both large-scale tactics of the entire army as well as individual fighting, and he seems very adept at individual fighting. However, in one battle where his side suffers losses, Tien is killed, and Kaladin, despite his best efforts, just cannot save him. Kaladin does rise up to become a squad leader, and he always bribes his way to having the scrawniest, rawest, newest enlistees in his squad. He tries to protect them long enough so that they, they can become seasoned soldiers, but every death weighs on him when he's not completely successful. In one battle, a foe wearing the shard plates uh, and wielding a shard blade begins mowing down Kaladin's side. He's about to kill Kaladin's general when Kaladin is able to kill the shard bearer. By law, this means Kaladin should be awarded the shard plate and blade. He doesn't want it, though, and he gives it to his squad. The general calls Kaladin and his squad to his tent and then has them killed, except for Kaladin. And the general is going to claim the shard plate and shard blade. Because Kaladin saved his life, uh, the general lets him live, but brands his forehead with the mark of a slave and sells him to a slaver. Uh, because of his knowledge of medicine, Kaladin tries to keep the other beaten down slaves that he is trapped with healthy, but the slaver still kills any weak or sickly slaves, and this weighs on Kaladin's soul. A windspread that seems to have more personality than any other spren Kaladin has seen begins hanging out with him. Her name is Syl, or at least he gives her that name, right? Or does she choose no. it? I can't remember. She says that's her name. Okay. And she begins learning and remembering their conversations, which is very strange to Kaladin. Uh, Kaladin and the other slaves are sold to a high prince, Sadius, uh, who is at the Shattered Plains. There, he is assigned to help Bridge 4. Now, the bridgeman's job is to run bridges out and lay them across the chasms between the plains so Sadius's army can cross. Then they have to pick up the bridge and outrun the army to the next chasm. It's awful work. It beats men down. When they reach the final chasm where the Parshendi are going to be meeting the Alethi army, the Parshendi archers always shoot at the bridgemen trying to drop the, the bridges so, so Sadius's army cannot cross the battlefield. Life is horrible and the mortality rate is very gruesome for the bridgemen, particularly in those last runs. Um, Kaladin considers committing suicide when Syl helps him remember what it's like to lead men, and he begins the long, slow process of cha taking charge of Bridge 4 and shaping its men into a healthy, unified group. On one run, he uses a new tactic, uh, using the bridge kind of like a shield to preserve, preserve his men's life, so they, they carry it on its side in front of them uh, so that the, the arrows can't reach them. Uh, and it works, but then other bridges see that tactic, and they try and use it immediately. They're not trained for it, and it leads to disaster for Sadius's army. As punishment, he is ordered strapped upside down to the side of a building when a high storm comes uh and they say the all uh, what do they call it the almighty is it just the almighty yes the almighty okay yeah they say the almighty will judge him and if he lives he's innocent and if he dies uh he was he was not uh worthy of being saved uh, but everybody knows it's a death sentence oh yes <laughs> but miraculously he does survive one of his men belonged to a small religious cult that awaited the return of the radiance and he believes kaladin may be one because he watches kaladin absorb stormlight from spheres and as he absorbs the stormlight it heals him as kaladin learns more he realizes the stormlight also gives him greater strength and endurance and allows him to bind objects together Sill, the Spren, seems to be uh, becoming more and more intelligent and has some insights into Kaladin's powers. All right, now the last part is where Kaladin and Dalinar's storylines really... Uh crossover. Sadius and Dalinar make a joint assault at on the Parshendi at a plateau on the Shattered Plains, but as soon as Dalinar's army is committed to the battle against a massive army of Parshendi, Sadius uh, retreats and takes his bridges with him, leaving Dalinar trapped. 
Kaladin and Bridge Fort disobey orders and return to lay a bridge for Dalinar's army, but the army, uh, Dalinar's army is cut off on this plateau. So Kaladin drinks in a lot of Stormlight and goes... I mean, there's a lot of pop culture equivalents for this. He goes Hulk mode, uh, Keanu Reeves in the Matrix, Goku go- going Super Saiyan uh, or Saiyan. Uh, but let's just say Kaladin wins at fighting <laughs> after he takes in the storm. <laughs> uh, and he cuts a path for Dalinar's surviving army members uh, to, to make it. And the bridge holds long enough for all the survivors to be able to retreat. Dalinar swears he will free Kaladin and his men. They march to Sadius's camp where Sadius acts unconvincingly, relieved that Dalinar survived. Dalinar demands that Sadius release the bridge men to him but Sadius refuses uh, Dalinar barters his shard blade for all of Sadius's slaves and Sadius immediately takes the offer uh, because shard blades are like the most sought off after commodity in this world they're worth a full kingdom basically yes and, and so for Dalinar to offer this uh, for slaves is just mind-boggling to everyone who sees it but Dal- Dalinar gave his word to Kaladin that he would free him. And this is the only way he sees uh, to be able to, to uh, fulfill his word, which Kaladin has a lot of trust issues with uh, light eyes and the rulers. <laughs> and this is one of the few moments where, he, where he's like, Oh, does Dalinar really keep his word? He did just give up a shard blade, but he still can't quite fully trust him, but he tries. <laughs> Uh, so Kaladin is put in charge of training all of the freed slaves to join uh, Dalinar's army, though they can go free if they wish. But many of them, you know, uh, they didn't have a lot of options before them <laughs> as slaves. So they uh, they prefer to to stay with Kaladin. In conclu- conclusion, uh, like at the end of this book, we're left with the idea that Kaladin may be a radiant. Sil is transforming into something much more than a spren. Jasna and Sh- uh, Sh- Sh- now I can't remember. Is it Shalon? Shalon. Shallan can soul cast by making deals with very strange Spren. Uh, Dalinar still desperately wants to unite all the high, high princes, and the king does trust him, but that's a tall task that lays before him. The Parshmen may be Voidbringers, and there's a lot of curiosity about who the Parshendi are. The end. Well done. Thank you. This is an intense book to try and uh, summarize. This, this episode is going to go a little bit longer than our average, uh, but I do want to dig into these characters because there's so much that is interesting about each one of them. But before that, I want to share what a line uh, that that stuck out to me when I was reading it, and I ended up like circling back to it, thinking this is is um, kind of huge for this. Um, for this text as far as like themes and it's fairly early on there's a moment where Kaladin um, is thinking of committing suicide basically and Syl comes back and convinces him to stay so Kaladin is standing at the edge of a a chasm and thinking about jumping down and Syl returns with uh, leaves that are poison now she doesn't know these are poison leaves Uh, Kaladin she'd seen him holding onto these poison leaves when he was a slave in a cage and he was thinking about killing himself to get out of this awful situation but he lost them um, and she, she saw that he lost them. And so she wants to return them to him. And, uh, she says, as she hands these to him, I flew so far, I almost forgot myself, but I came back. I came back Kaladin. And this idea of going so far that you forget yourself, but then returning to who you are and who you need to be. To me, that's something that happens with each one of these characters. They, they almost forget that he keeps almost forgetting how to be a leader and then saying, no, I need to fight and I need to lead these men. I need to save people. Um, but, he he almost forgets himself and then comes back to that. And uh, Dalinar is worried, panicked that he is losing himself in these visions uh, and in you know this quest to unite the the, the um, high princes into you know one united kingdom. He thinks it may be madness, uh, and he has to be reminded that that is 
who he is. And um, Shallan, um, you know, is I don't think she, she she doesn't yet know who she needs to return to, but she also seems to like keep going down these little side paths away from her actual journey. At first she thinks her, her quest is to uh, steal the soul caster. Uh, and she keeps feeling like she's being distracted. We, we find out like her real job is to become a soul caster herself. Um, but she still had all these distractions that were kind of pulling her away and she was forgetting herself. Uh, and so I think that line from Syl, who also I'm waiting for Syl to become a much more important character in the future books, um, is something that sums up, I think, a lot of these character journeys that we see in this. It's not so much um, a transformation to something else, but it's a uh, finding out who they really are at their cores. I think that is very, very intuitive. Honestly, I have never thought of it quite in that way. And I'm really intrigued by it. Um, even more so than, you know, as I think about future books, like this continues to be very insightful of you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that particularly because I haven't read the future books. So I didn't know how insightful it was for the whole series, <laughs> but for this book, I felt like I was something about that line stuck with me. And I started to see like Kaladin over and over, particularly, um, you know, losing himself and then coming back, uh, to his role, um, as a leader and not just to save himself, but also to inspire those around him. Uh, but then, you know, having these moments of doubt and losing himself, uh, he needed to be reminded who, who he could be. Um, and, uh, and then I started to like map that onto these other characters as well. It works very well. Um, and, and so that for me is like one of the major themes of the book. Is there anything that kind of unites these three characters for you as you think about, uh, the way of Kings? I, and certainly we can also dig into each one individually. I just want to kind of have a more global conversation first. Well, that's a great question. Um, all three, all three of them. All three of them are written very differently than normal fantasy characters, in in my opinion. Kaladin has depression, and you know Shallan has a troubled past, but then is still troubled. Like you know, we talked about in the Harry Potter episode how Harry's abused his whole life, and then he goes to school, and he's very kind and well rounded. And like you get the same thing in Rapunzel, Cinderella, but like Shallan has this troubled past that we don't really know much about, but we know that it was rough and she seems to still struggle and um, have problems there. Like Dalinar, there's things in his past as well that we get hints of like, why can't he remember his wife's name (laughs) and, uh, or anything about her. And, um, you know, he has this history, history of drinking and everybody sees him as this great fighter in general, the Blackthorn, and yet that's not who he is now. And he actually literally considers, am I going mad? And is willing to consider that. Like, how many people are willing- To his role and, and like say, for the good of everyone, I need my son to take over because I can't be trusted. Right. Like, how many people in power are willing to do that? <laughs> not many. <laughs> yeah. Um, and all of them just have this like- they're, they're not your typical fantasy characters. They have to overcome like real life problems that I've heard a lot of people who really struggle with severe depression and they read this and they're like, how did he get into my head to write Kaladin? And that right there just makes these books feel so much more real and genuine that he really does take the time. He being Brandon Sanderson takes the time to really research these things that these characters have suffered and 
and this continues through the series, um, and really puts real life emotions and mental illnesses and makes them the heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And like Shalon, we we see some hints. Um, we don't get her backstory in, in this version. Like w- w- when we're seeing her, it's just her and anything that she reveals. And she she keeps her history very, very secret. But one of the interludes is one of her brothers, and he seems like the worst. <laughs> I just want to say, um, like, yes. like the, the thought of growing up with that as one of like your your only inner social interactions. Uh, not not a good situation for her to have been in. Um, and certainly there's there's hints about her her father being very controlling to like to the level of abuse. Uh, um, and and so, yeah, de- definitely there. Um, one thing that I think is interesting with Kaladin is the, like, yes, I, I think depression is is absolutely right. And as you said, like people can can read this and say, how does he understand depression? But um, you layer in on top of that, like even if you're not thinking of it through the lens of mental health, like he's given so much where he feels such guilt um, for everyone to save and world. Like there, there's so much death around him. Like you, you, you can see it like just motivated by that alone before you also then can layer in, um, you know, the, you know, how, how that would compound, uh, you know, depression. Um, the, the, the way that he drives himself and gives himself so much, personal responsibility for things that are out of his control uh, and feels like it is a personal failing when these things that are out of control happen. Uh, it gets compounded by that, that mental health side of it, that it, it makes a very compelling character that you, um, I, I remember in, in, uh, in college uh, we, we had, a, I think it was that class on sci-fi and fantasy. We were reading Ender's game. And one of the students said, I just want to give Ender a hug. And I feel that way about Kaladin. <laughs> like, this man just needs a hug. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure if you tried to give him a hug, he would probably punch you across the face. Oh, he would He would not <laughs> think this was done, uh, you know, willingly and without uh, subterfuge or, or without <laughs> expectation of something. You know, he would have a lot of doubts about the hug. <laughs> Rock might be able to give him a hug. And he's probably the only character who could get away with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and actually, like, even as I say that, I'm like, you know what? Uh, Dalinar needs a hug too, and so does Shalon. They they all need hugs. They all need hugs. Well, they're all broken. <laughs> like, yes. they're all just broken, and they're trying to live anyway. And and they have a drive. Like they they have goals they want to obtain, but also like those goals change. So like Shalon, it's very obvious. Like her goal initially is to steal something, and now it's like okay, well there's a broader world that I feel like I I'm a part of. You said initially, like she, she feels she's a broader world of like academia. Like she gets really into her studies and like enjoys these conversations. And she's like, do I really want to just go back to my small kingdom and help my turns out pretty horrible brothers um, out of the situation? Or do I want to, uh, you know, become a force in the academic world. But then she discovers like this, this more mystical magical world that she's going to have a part in um, that she immediately, like wants to expand her understanding of and deepen her understanding of. Uh, but with Kaladin, like at times, like his, his goal that he's striving for is uh, survive, regain some sense of humanity. Then it's become like lead and save other people. And then it's uh, train them uh, so that they could, you know, fight for freedom, you know, instead of like keeping them alive as bridgemen, it's like, how could I move them beyond being bridgemen? Uh, so like he has a moving target. That's always, but it's always about uh, becoming more and, and guiding others to being more. And Dalinar, uh, you know, wants to 
change the entire political system <laughs> of the kingdom. <laughs> he wants to unite them. <laughs> yes. And also uh, is starting to have doubts about the uh, the 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 war of revenge against the Parshendi. Like like at times it's like unite them so that we can win the war against the Parshendi. And he's like, should we be at war with them? He's starting to have this like little doubt that's running through. Yeah, he's turning from like, you know, so the Alethi have their entire religious system is based on this idea of um, we, the Voidbringers kicked us out of the Tranquiline Halls, kind of like their heaven. And the Heralds have now left, you know, the Heralds defeated them here and have now moved to reclaim the Tranquiline Halls from the Voidbringers. And so we, as, you know, humans of the, followers of this religion, we need to become the best soldiers we can be so that when we die, we can go join that fight. And so it's like their religion is telling them to battle and war and fight all the time. Like, what's that going to do to a society? Well, and we see that what it does is that they're not only battling and warring against the outsiders, like their internal existence has become geared around fighting and uh and manipulation and dueling uh, uh it's, so it's not, again it's not like one alethi army it's like no these high princes are fighting a, a war within their side as they're trying to fight a war against the parshendi yeah there are 10 kingdoms that are un- united by name but aren't really united at all they they're all their own little kingdoms and so they have border skirmishes within each other but then they're all fighting together and it's just this mess <laughs> and Dalinar buys into it his whole life until shortly before you know the book starts when he starts having these visions and he's like reflecting on failing his brother and, and he's having the book read to him I, I I said earlier like the women are the only ones who can read it so when he's studying uh the 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 uh the way of kings he's not picking up the book and reading it he's having it read to him uh because the, the men can't read in this world which is such a fabulous world building point, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I love him. One of his visions when he goes to the past, uh, and uh, he's having this vision of a that that feels so real that he is convinced he is being transported somehow to this other life, and uh, we come to like be told basically that's right. Um, uh, the 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 things he's seeing are like historically uh, corroborated by text he never would have had access to. Uh, but in one of them, uh, a man makes a reference to reading, and he's like, "Oh, what kind of society is this?" <laughs> <laughs> where the men are reading that's that's crazy um right. and, and it, it like immediately it like puts you in that space where like what you your normal is is not everyone else's normal uh and, and it does it in a very humorous like like simultaneously like humorous but intriguing way yeah and as there's he's going through these visions and seeing so many things about his current culture being um nullified like he sees a woman radiant she's in shard plate she comes to battle and he's like a woman in shard plate like what (laughs) and just totally rocks his world like this is not the radiance i expected to see this there's men of letters (laughs) (laughs) it's like uh have you ever read the nasa mira mira uh it's 
um, a text that just kind of like treats as though it was like cultural anthropology of this very strange other culture. Uh, but it gets presented in a way that you don't realize until the, the end that it was, uh, or you're not supposed to realize till the end that Nesamira is American backwards. And it was just pointing out strange things about American culture, <laughs> but, but with like just enough abstraction and distance, you're like, well, that's a really weird way to do things. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, that's how we do it at the end. And then you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but uh, as far as like world building, it, it, like all those touches and the, like the commitment to them. And as you said, uh, like how you see them both um, like, like presented to us in one chapter and then like troubled in another, either through uh, the, the, the visions or through um, seeing uh, the interludes in other parts of the world where things are done differently. Um, or like one of the slaves um, is kind of like, you know, basing your uh your whole social hierarchy on the color of eyes is pretty stupid and then another was like i've seen some other really stupid ones and they talk about some systems in other in other areas of um of the world um it serves as um like we said like critique of this high fantasy world but also you know some social critique of our own world and i love when fantasy and science fiction are able to do those successfully and i think brandon sanderson does do it very successfully here Oh, he does a very excellent job in all of his books that make me rethink like my assumptions. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're showing me that humans are basically terrible. And I see your point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How do we change that? <laughs> and I think um, what makes it so successful for me, at least in these ones, is that it is rooted in this other world that he has made. It's not that other world as allegory, though that allegory can exist. But he has done the work to think through the political, economic, religious, social systems that exist there and that are driving, as you said, like the Alethi, where like when their religion says this about war and violence, what does that do to the rest of the culture? Well, we see what it does to their political structure. We see what it does to the, you know, their military and this, um, as, as you said, like the separation that ends up between men as destroyers and women as creators um, and these other things. And then out of that, we get some allegories that we can, as readers can take into our world, but it is not a story as allegory about our world, which sometimes science fiction does very on the nose <laughs> you know, uh, you know the, the classic uh star trek um of uh you know the people who are half white half black and some of them have the half black on one uh, left side and some are halfway and half white on the right and the others are the opposite and they hate each other because of that and uh you know this is 1960s america <laughs> that we're getting this very on the nose commentary uh about the stupidity of hating someone for looking different um and and you know it's it's a good episode it's a famous episode but it's also not you know, uh, it, it's just text. It's not subtext, right? Um, you know, what they're getting at. Um, the allegory is just so thinly removed from our world. Um, Sanderson immerses you in a different world that is very removed from our world and um, has such a different system, not just of magic, but of, of everything. Uh, and yet he's also adding that commentary about humanity and about our world and, and the prejudices that we see around us. And uh, you know, the systems that are upheld just through the weight of tradition and not because of the validity of how things are done. Um, I think all of that's there, but it's all, uh, you know, it's all so embedded in this new world that he has created that is fascinating to look at that. I, it's just a, a really wonderful example of fantasy world building, but still allowing some of that commentary to be present. Yeah, he and the more you talk about it, the more you start realizing, oh, this is how I'm seeing it in my own world. But you have to like do the work yourself to get there. He doesn't just like 
give it to you on a silver platter of, and here's how America is broken. <laughs> yes. Um, but also he's done the work to build this other world. Like we said, like the iceberg of, absolutely. Uh, we're seeing, you know, th- this tip and, you know, as these characters move through, they're saying stuff that he knows the reasons why, uh, you know, this book costs this much or, you know, whatever it may be, uh, you know, he, he has the reasons why, and we're supposed to just do some inferences or, or, you know, just get swept along in this, in this other world. Uh, but he's got so much beneath it that has, um, you know, that for him allows allows this world to interlock that introducing magic in this one area isn't going to uh you know destroy a simple economic system that you know is just a surface level economic system that you might find in some uh more quickly written uh fantasy stories you know that don't take the time to do that kind of level of world building that he does mm-hmm. should we dig a little bit into each one of these three characters um sure. let's start That's with great. shalon what to you kind of defines her as a character in this story. Like if we were going to do a quick sketch, what, who, who is Shalon? Well, you've talked a lot about how each character changes and Shalon just starts as this like really timid, quiet, rural girl who like has never been allowed to explore. She's never been allowed to do the things she wants to do. She wasn't very well educated. She was kind of limited to the books in her father's estate and not very many tutors and like she never goes anywhere. And so she, this is her first foray into the world and she's doing it alone with this huge task of, I have to save my family um, by stealing from the most powerful woman in the world and not just stealing any like money from her, but no, I'm going to steal this like religious artifact that's owned by a heretic and oh by the way she's the sister of a king (laughs) and like she's taking a monumental task on her which i find fascinating because i grew up in a rural city at town i don't think you can call it a city and (laughs) i mean i was i had a lot more resources than she did but i came out of there timid and i stayed pretty timid (laughs) like i can't even fathom and this idea of, and now go steal a soul caster. What? <laughs> and, but the determination you see in her, like if she has a reason to do something, like she believes that she is the only person who can save her family um, from utter destruction and she's going to do it. And so, you know, she approaches Jasna, she gets turned away. She's like, well, what do I have to lose? She does it again. She's turned away. And like, she's starting to give up, but like, what else can she do? And then one of my favorite scenes for her just for fun is this scene where Yalb, one of the sailors, convinces her, no, it's the third try when you really need it the most. That one wins every time. And so she's like, well, what else can I do? And ends up going and buying a bunch of books because Yasna told her, when you've learned more, come back. And so she's like, great, I'm going to go buy a bunch of books and learn until she's ready to leave. And just like, finds the little wiggle room in there (laughs) to I'm going to do it. And then you see over and over again that whatever her purpose is, she's going to get what she wants, even though the world (laughs) seems to be against her over and over and over again. And she keeps, you know, like she's poisoned and almost dies. She's, you know, accused of rightfully so, of thievery. (laughs) Not accused, caught. (laughs) She's caught. (laughs) Um, Stealing and like, even with all of this on her, she still, when she realizes, wait, 
Yasna actually soul cast, like she's putting together this story. She's like, I still had the soul caster and she soul cast. And when I soul cast the blood, I didn't actually have the soul caster on. Wait. And she's just like confronts her with it. Like that's going to gain her nothing for her family, like which was her only goal before. And now she realizes, no, my goal is knowledge and I have to know what's going on. And the only person who can tell me is the person who hates me the most in this world. And I'm going to go get what I want. And she does. Like she just has this determination that's kind of quiet and hidden and drives her through everything. And I just love that about her. Yeah, um, I think she has a lot of um, like internal and uh, natural skills that expand to whatever opportunity comes to her. Um, so when she is trapped in her father's estate, she learns everything she can learn from reading those books. And she becomes very good at art, which she can kind of, uh, she has some training, but also she can continue refining that herself. And she becomes amazing as an artist. Um, but she has those limitations based on the situation in which she finds herself. But when her world expands, as she goes out to this, uh, to this library and has Jasna teaching her, she becomes very adept at a lot of these new ideas these uh so like learning philosophy which is not something she'd ever really engaged in uh learning history uh you know which is something that she'd never been taught she expands to those new horizons and as she gains this new magical skill um you you know because of how we've seen her that she is going to like continue to engage and master uh you know this new horizon that that's um being introduced to her so i i think she's um she one thing that i like about her is um that way that she kind of fills whatever opportunity is present. Um, and in some ways, like you said, she can make those opportunities, but also like there were very real limitations on how she was raised and uh, what was before. And if Jasna had to know the third time, I don't know what she would have been able to do to change that. You know, she was, she was able to force that. Um, but uh, you know, she, she, when, when opportunity comes, she is able to make the most out of it. Um, and the, this isn't, um, you know, one of those uh, yeah, talking about other kind of fan fantasy character types. She's not a chosen one. She's not. Uh, we find out she she is special. She has skills uh, that are going to make her unique. But it's not like there's some prophecy about her at the you know that has driven her forward uh, and that she feels like she must fulfill. It's just um, oh, you know, there's something new that I'm seeing at the sides of my vision, and I, I don't understand it, but I'm going to fully engage with it. Um, even as she's scared and worried, um, you know, she's, she ends up like going into their world. I can't remember the name of the world. We're given a name of their world. Shadesmar. Shadesmar. Okay. That's, that's a nice creepy sounding thing. Um, <laughs> you know, that she's, she ends up willing to, to literally enter into that, to try and understand, uh, you know, the, the, this new kind of spread uh, that, that are, uh, that she's only be just been told exist, but now that she knows they exist and knows they're real, um, she, she goes all in. Well, and she's terrified to interact with them. She, they ask her a question. She answers it. She soul casts. But, you know, she's still like terrified of it, doesn't want to draw. But then when she realizes that's the only way to prove that she soul cast to Yasna, um, she immediately reaches out and asks, you know, can you hear me? And they're like, always. Okay. Also creepy. Um, <laughs> and, and she's like, not a relief really, but <laughs> can you take me back? She immediately, she doesn't shy away from using the resources she has. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Let's talk a little bit about Dalinar. Um, so he is 
a complex, conflicted character. <laughs> yes, he is. And he is not at peace with himself. And I think that's one thing that's interesting. Um, in in terms of both, like, he has doubts about the decisions he's making. He has doubts about what is motivating those decisions, whether it's guilt that he was drunk when his brother was killed, whether it is mad visions or true visions that he's receiving, uh, whether, you know, he, he, giving up uh, some of his the fighting that had made him so famous in, in a pursuit of a greater peace for the kingdom. Is that out of um, pride and ego that he wants to be something else than what he was, or is it actually out of shame? You know, like there's, there's multiple things that he's, he seems to be conflicted by uh, in every choice that he makes. And then he's hugely conflicted about the fact that he is in love with his brother's uh, you know, his dead brother's wife. (laughs) Um, And uh, then compounded with that, that he's got this magical hole in his memory about, about his actual wife who who had died uh that he can't remember a single thing about her and when uh people talk about her it's just kind of static and and fuzz (laughs) that that happens to his mind uh because of some magical sacrifice that he made where he had to give something up to get something we don't know what was given up nor what was gained uh in this yet in this book i'm sure that will be a a sequel uh backstory that (laughs) that gets revealed uh at some point uh but uh, like the the quick takeaway for me about dalinar is um noble but hugely conflicted um there's a term called you know there's moderators and abstainers and moderators are people who can do like i can eat one chocolate a day and make the bag last for two weeks and then there's um abstainers who it's like all or nothing you know if you give me a bag of chocolate i'm going to eat the whole thing period and he strikes me very much as an abstainer as a person who is like if i bend one little bit I will break. I will shatter. And so he set up these rules for himself. I will follow the oaths. I will not break cultural tradition and court my husband or my brother's wife. Um, I will unite them. Like all these things that he's built these walls for himself. And he's afraid to let them shatter even one little bit. And he talks about that often. Um, Like when he's going out with Sadius to the tower, that big battle at the end. And Sadius is like, let's ride in together one giant army. And he's like, no, I have said that I will not risk bridgemen lives. And if, you know, I'm not going to bend here. Like he considers it. And then he remembers Navani and he's like, no, if I break here, I'll break there. (laughs) Um, And he's just like, I will not. It's like, it reminds me of, um, Carl G. Mazur's Circle of Honor or whatever it's called mm-hmm. at BYU, where he says, you could draw, um, use chalk to draw a circle around myself. And if I say I will not leave this circle, then I will not leave it no matter what, because I've given my word of honor. And this is Dalinar. If he says he's going to do something, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's really interesting in talking about like the conflicting ideas uh, that we get with him. Um, you know, we see again, like a nobleness in, in that. Uh, but we also are told, I think explicitly and implicitly several times, like he is ma- at times making bad decisions uh, because of uh, how rigid, rigidly he's engaging with the world. Um, and he's limiting himself and harming himself and others because of this. At the same time, he's also, going to be attempting to fix a very broken system. Uh, but he's doing it because in some ways he wants to return to old tradition. So on the one hand, I think this book is 
really trying to make uh, make us question the the logical fallacy of tradition, where we're, we're like, we do the thing because we've done it, not what is the reason is the right way to do the thing. It's just, well, we've done it that way, so we're going to keep doing it that way. Um, and uh, but then in in disrupting like the current tradition, in some ways he's going back to older tradition, and we need to see that we'll, we'll peek behind the curtain of what is the why is that older way right like why you know what is the the proper motivation there that makes this a better uh system and, and some of that we can see very clearly like there's so many flaws in the current system uh that that we would prefer <laughs> some of the older system get put in place uh but but i think we're also meant to do some of that work and and raise some of those questions of okay Dallin, are you're questioning the way things are done now and you want to turn back to this older system but maybe we also need to question that older system like is there a better way than either of those two options it's not just a or b uh you know what 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 are some other ways that we could do this yeah in some ways dalinar does not make a very good alethi because alethis are you know they have their games and they twist things and they're always scheming and he is so blessedly straightforward <laughs> and he's kind of he's blinded by that um he's got this one track mind and it doesn't matter what's happening on the outside he's so focused on okay well i gotta do this that he doesn't see the implications like he's so fixated on okay the visions told me to trust sadius that he never thinks to question were the visions actually talking to me were they <laughs> talking about sadius <laughs> yeah was that actually about sadius he wasn't listening to what the Almighty was telling him. He was just listening to what he wanted to hear, what he wanted to get out of the visions. Mm -hmm. And he suffers from that one-tracked mindedness often. <laughs> um, and luckily, he ha he's surrounded by good people. Well, some of the people around him are good people. <laughs> he's not completely surrounded by good people. No, he's also <laughs> surrounded by a lot of you know, conniving eels, but and also some just pathetic, like the king is kind of pathetic. <laughs> we're, we're not going to talk about him much, but I, you know, he's, he's got some pathetic people around him too. He's kind of a whiner, <laughs> <laughs> yes. but like Adolin, I, you know, Adolin's kind of a fop, but I love him because he's so genuine. Like this yeah, is uh down our son. Adolin. Yes. Down our son. Adolin is, you know, he's, a teenager he's all about girls and dueling and fashion and all that kind of stuff but he genuinely wants what's best for his father like he he's but he, he's a teenager and he's kind of an idiot and he pushes things and he's got strong emotions and and there's times where he thinks he knows best just because he's thinking the way he's thinking <laughs> right but as soon as he's proven wrong about something he'll consider it and he'll oh I'm sorry. I, I one of my favorite moments of this is uh, he is always complaining about his father forcing their camp, and theirs is the only camp to maintain like strict military uh, systems in place. Like even when they're relaxing, they're supposed to be wearing their military uniforms. They're supposed to be uh, very formal. And uh, there's an instance where he uh, I can't remember why, but he's in another camp, and he looks around. And he's like, oh, you know, people's lives are at stake in what we're doing, and these people are treating it like it is a a game and uh maybe my dad's onto something and like the, just that recognition like maybe my dad does know what he's talking about like i hope my kids have that sometime <laughs> because <laughs> there's a very natural stage in teenagerhood where you start to like push back and think you know 
well, I'm seeing things differently than I saw, you know, than I've ever seen them before. Therefore, what I'm seeing right now must be right. Uh, and we see like that moment of maturation, like, like it's a very distinct moment of maturation for Adeline where it's like, oh, maybe the dad does know what he is talking about in in this area. And he has several of those little moments. He has one on the tower when um, that big battle where they're betrayed, when mm-hmm. he's like yelling, I told you so. I told you not to trust him. And Dalinar is like, I know. Go ahead lash out and he's like no you were right you know like i wouldn't have wanted you to do anything differently and when he stops just being angry and really thinks about it he realizes i wouldn't have wanted you to be like them i'm glad that you're you are honorable and that we protect our men like i wish we would have I wish we were about to die right now. Right. I wish wish we wouldn't have put ourselves in this situation. But I see that, you know, like in this moment where he could just be angry, he gives Dalinar one of the greatest moments of peace. And I just love him for those little moments like that. Okay. Last character we're going to touch on in some depth, Kaladin. Uh, definitely, I think like the, the core protagonist of the, of the, of this text and the one that we see, um, transform the most both and by that i mean like he vacillates between some extremes (laughs) in this as we've noted uh he's the one that i think the most fits that sill line about like i i thought i lost myself but i found myself again um throughout the story but also like where when we when we first meet him he's on the battlefield but then we meet him in the slave cage but that's from another character's point of view when we see him on a battlefield as like a leader uh but then when we first get his point of view storyline he's in the cage right as a slave am i remembering mm-hmm. that right at the beginning yes. uh and and so largely as far as like from his point of view the story that we're told is him going from a slave to uh a leader like uh, almost a lieutenant for dalinar's army i can't remember what the final you know fantasy rank he's I given is he becomes like- <laughs> captain captain in this fantasy army where i'm not 100 sure what that means but he's given a, a, a position of authority so from slave to in many ways goes, almost like a right hand man uh, he of basically Dalinar. goes to the highest position he could possibly have as a dark eyes right and he's doing this uh again like we, we when we first meet him he's uh a slave in a cage that's borderline suicidal uh um i mean and, he's carrying around the most poisonous leaf on roshar he's not sure why like for himself as a contingency plan or for the slaver. I don't know. Just, yeah. it's a weapon. <laughs> so there's massive transformation there. Um, and the way that he gets written, particularly like when, when he finds himself again, he's like wakes up and he starts leading the men. Um, like there's just a vibrancy uh, about the way the character kind of like projects. Um, it's not just leadership, but like he projects, uh, an essence that makes other people want to be better versions of themselves when they're around him, which, which is a type of leadership, but there's lots of different ty- types of leadership. Right. But, um, but it, it's very well written. And um, I, I also love how like he sees the end goal that he wants to reach, but it's, it's obtained in fits and starts and there's missteps and uh, you know, backsliding that happens as he's, as he's on this, this journey. Well, going back to your leadership comment, there is a point when he tells Gaz, I am bridge leader stay out of my way. And Gaz is like, you have no authority. Like, <laughs> what, like what, what do you think you're the, doing? The bridgemen have nothing. Like, like there is no rank in the bridgemen really. <laughs> right. And, um, as he leaves, he tells Syl he's wrong, you know, 
authority is not, or you can't be given authority. And she goes, well, then how do you get it? And he says, by the men who give it to you. And this idea that you have to be a leader. You can't just have the title, but if you're going to have people follow you, you have to be a person worthy worthy of following. And that is how he gets his authority with the bridgemen. Like he has the title, but at first they're like, yeah, Gaz, does he have authority outside <laughs> of the field? And he's like, nope, <laughs> you don't have to do anything, he says, unless we're on a run. And so they don't and they hate him, but it's not until he shows them that he cares that he will rescue them. Um, you know, he says, um, it's my right to run in the front. And everybody else is like, you're crazy. That's like the death point. You're going to die. And honestly, as a reader, I think that's the stupidest move he ever made. <laughs> like knowing the whole story, it was a great move, but from what he knew, He's like, I'm going to be your leader. It's my right to lead the run in the death point where he's guaranteed to be killed. That makes no sense. But he does it and he comes off conqueror for it. And he just over and over again, he's, you know, people fall wounded. He heals, you know, he treats their wounds and he's like, I'm taking you back. Even though everybody else is like, no, you're not. He's like, I'm sorry, you're a boulder in my path and I'm going to push you out of the way and get what I want. <laughs> yes. Well, and I, I think it's um, once he decides he's going to be the leader, he starts acting like a leader, even though no one's following him. And that's you know, those moments of um, like, like you said, the, making the, the men give him leadership and give him, they give him respect and um, are, are willing to follow. But it's because once he decides okay, all right, this is who I am. I'm going to lead it at this bottom of the barrel in terms of like social and economic, you know, and military rank that he's at in the Bridgman that I'm going, I'm going to be the leader to make these the best Bridgman that can exist, which no one has ever tried before. When he starts to do it, literally no one follows him. <laughs> he's, he's, he, like he, he, he's like, okay, one, one of the issues is uh, the only exercise we get is when we run the bridges, which is every, you know, maybe maybe four days apart, maybe ten days apart, uh, and then we're just laying around because we're so beaten down, and it destroys our bodies to do that once. Like, like basically, like the the hardest workout you can imagine one day, and then go lay down <laughs> for the next week. <laughs> um, and so he starts to like exercise every day, and at first he's like, "They're going to join me," and they don't. <laughs> he's just out there exercising by himself. In fact, they uh, make bets against him. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so I love that um, it's not like a hand wavy type of leadership where it's like, okay, I'm just had to be leader and now I'm carrying myself differently and everyone respects me. Like we see the fits and starts and the struggle that it is to get there. And it feels earned when it finally does occur that, um, you, you know, it, it's bit by bit that, you know, okay, two people joined him and then, and then eventually he has the whole bridge crew um, following him, but that feels really earned. It's not just, I, I, not I told you I love you and I'm going to save you. And now they respect him. No, it's, it's, it's a long process in the book. And it's not just following him like, oh, I'll do what you say. But by the end, they're like, we want to be out there being the ones dressed in the Parshendi armor stuff. And like, which the Parshendi don't like people touching their dead. And so they actually desecrate the bodies of the Parshendi and use those to build armor. And so the Parshendi are focused directly on them trying desperately to kill them and by the end they're all like 
we've all, every single person on the bridge crew volunteered to be one of those people who are taking the risk to protect everybody else. Where at the beginning, they're like, yeah, put the new guys up in front so they can die and we can live another day. Like he completely changes them as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, it's, you know, starts as like the lowest level of like every man for himself, but really it's like, I like, I'm barely going to exist by myself to uh, a single unit. Um, that, that again, like the payoff is, is earned through all these steps that we kind of brushed over in our summary because there's so much that happens. There's just so much plot in this. Um, okay. Uh, do you have any final takeaways that you want to make sure we touch on about either these characters or this book? So one thing we haven't talked about um, that I love about Brandon Sanderson, and this continues through all of the books, is he he doesn't have like black and white, good and bad. Um, This is the bad guy. This is the good guy. The end. But they're relatable. And as you get to uh, get to know the bad guy and you start realizing, oh, they have motivations, too. So there is a character who we see in every single set of interludes. His name is Zeth. And at first we see him murder the king, um, Dalinar's brother. And in a very brutal way, he's a hired assassin and he kills him. And at first you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> what? I don't like him. He's a bad guy. And then as you get to know his story and he is kind of controlled by this oath stone, whoever holds his oath stone, he has to obey and he hates it. And it, he's at first owned by like, just like, petty criminals or even like farmers or merchants and they don't they feel uncomfortable because they can tell he's he can do greater things and so they keep selling him and he's just hoping to be kept with these people who don't know how to um utilize him and then he his oath stone is taken by a, somebody who's very brutal and asks him gives him this list of like super powerful kings, emperors, these very powerful people throughout the world. And he is very capable. He has a shard blade um, that, and he's, he's a search binder. He has the ability to bind things together. He has the ability to change gravity. He's got this magical system in a world that nobody else has this magic. Nobody knows to expect it. And so he can be just devastatingly brutal. And yet as you're reading his viewpoint and he's hating himself and he's hating what he's doing and he's starting to go a little mad in doing this and you just feel so much empathy for him. And he's not really the bad guy, but he is the bad guy. And eventually you find out that the person who's holding his oath stone, the person who's controlling him is this very kindly old king that we have loved through the entire book. He's the king of the city where Yasna and Shalan are. And you find out that he's doing it. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) And it completely turns everything on its head that somebody you thought was a good guy is suddenly the bad guy. And throughout the book, you just keep seeing people flip flop and, and not in like, Oh, an unbelievable way, but in a way that makes people feel real and faceted and that everybody has multiple goals and reasons why they're doing things. And I just love 
how real he makes it all. I love that you use the word empathy for that because um, as we become like more socially conscious of like particularly mental health issues, there's a lot of books that you look back on and you're like, oh, that wasn't handled very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and like madness became a shorthand for villainy in many instances, or um, it, it just wasn't handled in a way that led to any respect or understanding. But it, with Kaladin's um, depression, with Dalinar questioning himself, with the abuse that Shallan is is uh, working through, um, like for a- each one of those, I think empathy is a good word that the reader comes away with in trying to uh, understand these characters and their motivations and uh, to appreciate the choices that are making uh, and to make the voice, like you said, the choices feel rooted in in a reality, even though it's, it's this, you know, vague magical reality that has its own rules that Brandon Sanderson has made up, but like uh, their choices do feel rooted in the world that Brandon Sanderson has built. And as readers, I think we do come away with empathy for each one of these characters. Well, and I think that was his original goal in writing this series. Um, His wife struggles with depression, but he views her as, you know, this hero to him. He loves her and he wants people to see her as more than just her depression and what she can do through her depression. And so he started writing these books about people with mental illnesses and different trials that um, help us see them with empathy and to understand what they're coming through. And in future books, we start seeing more and more and more of this. And it's this world of broken people that are beautiful. And as we I love that idea in real life that is we can, we all feel broken sometimes. And if we can see ourselves as beautiful and when we see somebody else's brokenness to see the beauty in that, um, it just builds this much more wholesome, empathetic world where we're, we're all recognizing that we're all flawed (laughs) and it's okay if you make a mistake. And even if I hate your mistake, I recognize that that's not your whole being. <laughs> Definitely something we could all work on. Well, if, I, I like that as a final takeaway uh, about this book. So thank you, uh, Tiana. Um, however, I do want to honor a request that you made. It's been several years since we had you on uh, to to do the dinner guest question. I don't remember exactly who you had picked uh, and I, I, you probably don't either, but the dinner guest question is if you could have any three to five fictional characters hang out with you for a dinner party, who would you invite just so you'd sit back and enjoy the conversation? So Tiana, uh, who would you like to hang out with for a dinner party? Well, staying true to the theme of this, I would definitely pick Hoyd who in this book is mostly known as Wit. Wit is one of those world hoppers that shows up in every single book. And he, I mean, you see how funny he is in this book. Um, He plays a much bigger role in this one than in any other book. And I am absolutely fascinated by his character, what his story is. The final books in the Cosmere series are actually going to have him as the main character and I'm probably going to be about 70 years old when those come out. <laughs> it's not really I, much of an exaggeration. I mean, I'm already all in uh, on Hoyd <laughs> as a character. This is the only thing I uh, I, I know him from. Uh, so much of it is, uh, of, as you said, like he, he's very funny, but it feels on some level like performative and you're waiting to see what is really happening underneath it all. And so, yes, having him as a character that can reveal stuff will be great. 
He's a character that I love and I trust with everything. And I am terrified beyond reason that he is going to betray me and turn out to be one of those empathetic bad guys. (laughs) And and I really just want to know his story. So I'd love to sit and just listen to him. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Anyone else you would like to have at a dinner party? Oh, probably, but I'm not sure I can narrow it down to one. Okay. <laughs> to yeah, we're, we're just going to take Hoyd. You just want a dinner party with we'll Hoyd. <laughs> well, we can definitely allow that. That is going to wrap up this episode. One of our longer episodes, but it was also one of our longest texts that we've tried to tackle in a single episode. Thank you, Tiana, for coming on. Well, thank you for having me again. It was really fun. And thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode and listening. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute, and our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast and dueling genre also hosts a uh, discord channel so you can look for that on discord if you're interested in seeing us and other dueling genre hosts there thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long Let me, uh, Andrew, I'm sorry. I'm going to take a moment uh, in the book and find this direct quote. Hold on. Um, let's see. Let's see where to go. All right, I have the page. <laughs>